As a business owner, you are working your tail off to make money, to put money in the bank, to build a generational business, to uh, work towards an exit for your business, to make money. So what do you do with all that money while you're making it, after you've made it, and into the future? My name is Corey Harlock. I'm the creator of Key Hire and welcome to the Key Hire Solutions Small Business Podcast. This uh, is our 20th edition, so I'm told by Matt. He doesn't. He hasn't lied to me in the past, so I'm going to believe him. 20, big 2-0. Uh, today is a very uh, special podcast. We have a bunch of firsts uh, happening today. We have our first best-selling author, Chris Mansky, author of out, um, his first book is called The Prepared Investor. I have read it. It is a super interesting book about finance, if you can believe it. Uh, we use history and money management and finance and investing all together. Highly recommend. Uh, apparently, a lot of people recommend it. It's a best-selling book. And he has his uh, second book coming out, Outsmart the Money Magicians with McGraw-Hill on November 23rd. So he's our first author. It's the first topic we've had for small business owners to think about life outside of their business and the best dressed guest we've ever had, hands down. So let's welcome Chris Mansky to the podcast. There he is. I'm really happy to be here. There I am, the best dressed. <laughs> you like that? You're definitely the best dressed guest we've ever had. We appreciate it's the uniform. It. I have to wear it. The finance uniform? That's right. Awesome. So we talked about you have a best-selling book that you, how old is that book? Two years? Two years now. It was so well done. I told you that. I, I loved it. I it, it was a it was a very captivating read. The way you weave everything together was so well done. Thank you for saying that. I had uh, a few folks talk about one of the vignettes in the book, how it would, uh, you know, make them emotional that they they actually were touched by the story in there. And you know what I forgot to mention that I should have is um, you have been you have been likened to Malcolm Gladwell in the way you tell stories and present your facts, which is high praise. It was very high praise. I'm such a fan of Malcolm Gladwell. And to think that they're saying my name alongside his, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. It is. So we, uh, we're going to talk about your new book, but we're going to do it in the uh, for, format of a conversation today, which is kind of cool. I'm excited about that. So the format of our podcast is always, you know, what is it? What are the mistakes people make and how, how do I fix it or how do I implement? So you're a, you're a, uh, you own Mansky Wealth. You're a personal wealth management firm, correct? That is correct. Awesome. So let's talk about, you know, when it comes to wealth management, we have these business owners that are working really hard, blood, sweat and tears to, to build wealth while they're in their business. Maybe they're building a legacy business. They want to hand it off. They're working towards an exit. So there's lots of um, stages within that life cycle of the cash. And so what what is wealth management? How how do they best take care of that money or what's the, what's the process they go through? Well, I think what's normal out there, you know, the, the thing that happens is that they partner up with a wealth management advisor and there's so many different styles and types of us out there that it's easy to get connected with a bad fit. It's very easy. Uh, and so, you know, usually the connection, the partnership, it, 
starts because of marketing or because of a, a friend or, you know, I, I bumped into this person at the wine tasting and now we're, we're talking a lot and there's, there's much more intentional ways to make sure that you end up with the, you know, with the, the, the right fit. Yeah. Right. You go to an event and there's the, the wealth manager there and you strike up a conversation and away you go. And I mean, maybe we should understand, I don't know, people might understand in terms of wealth management, that's, that's, that's an umbrella term and it covers a lot of different areas, personal and professional. It really does. So a business owner could be talking to Wall Street because of a 401k plan. You know, they're trying to take care of their themselves and their employees and get really good investment like benefits available to help people save for retirement. And that is an interaction in a partnership with Wall Street. But it's also really likely that the business owner is able to set money aside because of the success of their business. And so they're looking at a partnership with Wall Street just to take care of their own retirement someday in the future, their own financial plan and uh, goal accomplishment as the months turn into years. And I think like me, you and I have one thing in common in terms of the industries we're in. People assume they know it. And there are a lot of people out there doing a really bad job giving people like you who do a great job a bad name. You know, there's there's a bad apple in every barrel, uh, but I think that the real rotten apple is every year there's a, 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 a survey that's done that shows how do individual investors handle their money as compared to how do professional investors handle their money. And it's astonishingly bad. You know, the professional investors are, let's say, uh, a, a point or two away from what the indexes do. And then the individual investors are you know, orders of magnitude less, you know, so, you know, just to give you some uh, stats, you know, a 6% return from the professionals is somewhat equivalent to a 1% return for the individual. So if and, I try to do it myself, I'm, the odds are against me. The odds are against you. And a lot of the, the science says that it's because emotionally we want to buy when things are good. And we want to sell when things are bad, which is the exact opposite of how you make money in the market. And so we're, you know, we're hearing about how terrible things are. And so that makes us less comfortable to take action. And then we're hearing about how great things are. And that makes us more comfortable to go out and, and do investing. And those are the exact opposite of what, you know, someone who's impartial and does it for a living is, is striving to do. And not that all professional investors accomplish it but that is the you know that is the goal so i this new book outsmart the money magicians we've talked about the premise of it a bit and we've talked about you know dealing with wall street street or the big brokerages what mistakes do people make you know i, I have this lump sum of money i've worked i've toiled and given blood sweat and tears to get this nest egg and now i want to invest it for my future or for my kids or their grant my grandkids what are the mistakes people make when they start moving into that or the misconceptions around what it is? I love that question because that is what Outsmart the Money Magicians focuses on. It's specifically the things that people get wrong, why they get them wrong, and then how to fix it. So I'll just give you a few examples. So one is in almost every area of 
our lives, we know that we pay after the service is done. Now, you might have to put a little bit up front, but you don't give it all up front and then, you know, uh, hope that it gets done right. In fact, the only time that we pay up front is when there's a very specific reason. Usually it's speed. You know, we'll pay up front to get our hamburger at McDonald's because we're wanting fast or same with Amazon. We'll order it because we want it fast. Interesting. But if it's not in, uh, you know, if it's not like that, then we don't pay up front. Somehow Wall Street has convinced us that we're supposed to pay them up front. And that's the first, I think the first step in the right direction is to demand in writing that any fees that occur in your account happen after the work has been done. So how, that's a totally new concept. People, I think most people would think I'm not even allowed. I'm, can I do that? Am I allowed to do that? How would you do that? Well, the first thing you do is uh, you just would tell the advisor, I need the, you to email me this and you know that way I have it in writing and they'll say they can't. And then, you okay, I need to talk to your manager. And it might be that if you're talking to a brokerage where there isn't any flexibility in that area, then you're, you're going to end up taking a, a really good step for yourself and you'll leave that brokerage environment. And, and you want to look at it from their point of view, because what they're thinking is, you know, the pennies make dollars. And so if I'm collecting all these fees before I get the work done, instead of at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter, you know, that's 30 days or 90 days that we've got the money and they don't. So it's much more powerful from a fee perspective to collect it up front. But if you switch that around, I mean, we want the advantage to be in the client side, not on the brokerage side. In that case, don't take the fee out until after the work is done, which means that the client has the advantage of all the money sitting there working for them. Maybe it's just earning interest or doing something else. But the idea is when the brokerage or any investment firm, when they charge in arrears, which is the industry term for after the work is done, if they charge in arrears, that's a very clear, measurable metric for proving that they're putting the client first, that it's not just the, I need to make a buck and we're using the client to make that happen. It's the opposite. Super interesting. Is there a correlation between the performance of a portfolio where you're paying after you do the work versus before you do the work? Well, I don't think that any studies have been done to show that because Every major brokerage firm charges upfront. They charge before they do the work. Uh, there, there is the only way to get a, a fee at the end of the engagement is if you buy an investment that's illiquid and it's a backout fee. So it's actually kind of like a punishment to the client for having sold. Uh, so if you're in the major brokerage in, environment, you need to talk to them to get it switched to be in arrears. And if they won't do it, then you probably should consider going somewhere that puts the client meaningfully in the forefront when it comes to service and taking care of their money. How hard would it be to find a brokerage that is willing to do that? It's very easy nowadays, but okay. I would say even just five years ago, it was harder. It's getting better and better every day, but uh, 10 years ago, it was, I mean, the only way that you'd get a, a fee arrangement 
where you pay after the work is done is if you're with an independent fiduciary shop like my own, but there, there's a lot of independent fiduciaries around. So it's not that I'm saying, look at my shop and how special we are, but in comparison to the brokers, you know, the, the brokerages, that's a incredible leg up. It's a totally different standard and much better. Um, but it is very easy now. I, mean, I think sometimes it's just a conversation with the brokerage firms and they say, oh, okay, well then that's this program and they get you to sign some new papers and, and you're off to the races. But uh, it didn't used to be that way. And slowly as people more and more stand up for, I do not want to be used by Wall Street to let them make money. I expect you to take your very best care of me. The more that happens, the more these firms are going to catch on that you know, we, we've got to do it right. Wow. Okay. That, I, this is, this is uh, eye-opening stuff. I, I, I didn't even realize it was an option. And my, my first thought was, does it matter how much money you're bringing in? Like, did they themselves put a threshold on if, if we have X amount, then we can do this in arrears program. But up until that, they don't have the option. No, that should not be a part of that equation. In fact, uh, I love that you asked that because a lot of the Wall Street culture is built around we want people to feel like we're offering them exclusivity. We're offering them something very special because they have a lot of money. This is the line in the sand and anything above that, oh, you're going to get special treatment. But it's very rare that that is more than just marketing. It, it really is just marketing. And it's, it reminds me of a an insurance agent that works with us. He insures clubs and bars. And he explained to me how a lot of these establishments, they are really in the cold light of day. They're just a square room. You know, it's there's nothing special in any corner of the room. But what they do is they stretch up a nice red velvet rope and they rope off one corner. And now every human being, we were just at our animal level. Oh, what's on that side of the rope? Yeah. And it's fake. You know, it's there's nothing special on that side except this, you know, this idea of, you know, FOMO, you know, I, I might not be able to be in there. So it makes it valuable, but that's not, that's not real value. That's emotional value. And right. that's what, that's what happens with these lines in the sand. When it, when an advisor says, well, I only work with people that have $10 million. Or I only work with people that have a million dollars, whatever line in the sand, it is very likely garbage. <laughs> and the reason for that, you can think about it from their point of view. Imagine if one of their biggest clients says to them, hey, I've got a cousin who's really special to me and only has 50,000. Can you take care of them? Can you help them and uh, you know, give them a little bit of your time and attention? They're not going to say, sorry, bud, no, no chance. I'm, never, I'm not going to help your cousin. It's not going to happen. Right. Or, or another example is you know, somebody approaches an advisor and says, I am on, the, on track to sell my company. Right now, I have about 50 grand, but after I sell my company, I'm going to have 6 million. That advisor's not going to say, hold on, Charlie, you can't talk to me until that business is sold. Yeah. yeah. No, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're going to help them. They're going to work with them. And, uh, you know, and I've coached uh, thousands of advisors. Uh, I've been in a role where I've traveled the country and I've helped other advisors to grow their practice. And I've seen the reality of, you know, where is that line in the sand and how many accounts that they have that's below that line? You know, we, we need to we need to be more authentic. You know, Wall Street needs to be more transparent about that. 
baloney with the line in the sand. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that to be charged in arrears has no connection to the amount of money that you're investing. It, I, I keep, I'm thinking like same service, different wrapper. Exactly. Like you have people of different levels of polish out there selling the same service, but they're saying mine's targeted at 5 million plus. Well, mine's targeted at a million and less. And, but it's, it, yeah. once you get into the business, you're getting the same team of people working on your business. You know, there's another item. So I'd mentioned that my book is filled with uh, these put the benefit into your camp and, and take right. it away from Wall Street. So just a second one, just to kind of keep the uh, the lights on this, the difference between suitable investing and fiduciary investing. Nobody knows about this. This is not in the news unless you're uh, in finance and you're really paying attention to it. But it's enormous. When you're working with the major brokerages of the world, you are getting legally a certain standard of care and it's called suitable. That's a legal term. And the definition allows the brokers to sell you things that have very big fees, even though there are materially similar investments that cost less. So this, the same, but the similar return, different fees. Right. So for example, you could have big brokerage, large cap growth fund, and inside are fees of 2% a year, or you could have the discount, uh, you know, very, very super cheap growth fund. And the fees in there are 0.05%. The 2% compared to 0.05 is orders of magnitude, crazy difference amount of fees and a suitable investing environment. Both of those are completely permissible. And there, there's no problem for the broker to sell that to their client, even though there's something that's very similar that could do pretty much the same thing for far less cost. And, and there's other there's other parts of suitable investing that basically you wrap all that up and it means that they're not thinking of the client first. Suitable investing means that they just have to make sure that the investment is suitable to the client because they're really thinking of the brokerage first. That's a, it's a legal definition. It's a legal standard. And when you leave that uh, suitable environment, leave the brokerage firm and you talk to a fiduciary, now it's a different standard of care. It's a, it's a legally different standard of care where you really do have to put the client's interests first. And you've got teeth to hold that advisor accountable because of that legal standard. It's a, it's a different service. So help, help me understand then to become a fiduciary, how, how is that monitored? How, how do I know this happens? What, what, what makes it different? That's the reason that this is so important. It's impossible without really making an effort to know, are you talking to someone who only has to be suitable or are you talking to someone who's meeting the fiduciary standard? And so to put that effort in, a great way to do that is just to say, please email me saying that you are a fiduciary. And if they're with a big brokerage firm, they're going to say they can't email that to you. And if they're not with a big, big brokerage firm, then, you know, their compliance department will make sure that, you know, they're not, uh, you know, sending out lies. You know, we, we, we like to think that people are 
are honest. And if you just honestly ask them, hey, by the way, are you a fiduciary? And they say, oh, yes, I am. Okay, just make sure you email that to me so I've got it in writing. Is there any extra training or certifications or um, compliance documents that are filed? Or is this just a kind of self-claimed um, standard that you hold yourself to? Uh, right. So it's not just a self-claimed standard. So the fiduciary advisors out there, they have in their organizational documents for their businesses, they have different language than brokerage firms, broker dealers. Uh, you know, they have suitable language to describe the service they're providing. And it's, it's truly a different animal. It's almost like, uh, are you organized as a corporation or are you organized as a partnership? Because there's different rules and they have different pros and cons. It's the same with uh, a fiduciary versus a suitable broker. Okay. That's again, super interesting stuff. So what, what are some of the other things they need to be looking out for? We've talked about making sure you're being charged in arrears, making sure you're, uh, it's in your best instance, interest to have a fiduciary. Is there anything else? Oh, sure. I mean, I could talk for hours about it. I'll, I'll tell you one more. Uh, yeah. So a service standard, in, in the Ritz-Carlton, you walk into the hotel and people are wearing certain uniforms and you might not know it, but they have been trained to say things a certain way. And there's a culture of when the client or the, the person who's staying there at the hotel asks for something, there's a way to take care of. There's a, a hospitality culture and they're recognized for being excellent at that hospitality. Well, it's not just them. There's there's a lot of businesses that they set up standards for how to interact with their customers. Even if you go to McDonald's, like, look, the first thing you say is, how may I help you? You know, what, what can I get for you? You know, there's there's step by step instructions for your interactions with customers. It's a customer service standard. Right. That does not exist on Wall Street. It is uh, it is an incredible truth. That's hard to digest when you first hear it. But hear me out. If you hire your financial advisor and you sign on the dotted line, you really don't know if that advisor is going to keep you informed and provide their service through a monthly email, through maybe they're just going to call you on your birthday and that's the only time you hear from them once a year. Or maybe they do a sit down meeting with you in July and that's the only interaction you have or they call you every quarter, or they, and you see this could go on and on. The point is you don't know. Now they might tell you, here's what I'm going to be doing, but this is just them saying what they're offering and there is no accountability. It's not like the firm is requiring them to do that because there is no firm-wide service standard for clients on Wall Street. It doesn't exist. So if, if your advisor changes careers and you need a new one, you haven't changed firms, you just are being introduced to another advisor at the same shop, you very likely are going to get a different level of service. They may, maybe this new advisor calls their clients uh, in the evenings on Saturdays. Whatever their outreach method is, you know, we don't know, but you're going to have to get used to their method. 
And sometimes you don't even have to change advisors for your service to change because again, there's no standard. They'll, they'll change it because they're just thinking, you know, I've been in the business now for 10 years. I don't need to work as hard. And so they don't, they don't call every quarter anymore. Now they email you, they email you once a month. It changed. And that's, you know, and that's uh, part of the way that we've kind of accepted that the, the benefit is on wall street side. They don't have to hold their people accountable to service. They just need to hold their people accountable to quotas. And that's a real big part of Wall Street culture is, you know, there's a certain amount of production that must be met. Otherwise, you get a pink slip and you're not going to be working here anymore. And, and you know, and, and that that is a, a, a tough environment. We, you know, we're famously known for it being such a tough environment, but it could be tough and client focused, but that would require a client service standard. As you talk, I think, you know, you think of Wall Street as this really buttoned up, driven, uh, corporate kind of mentality, this corporate entity. But as you talk, you realize it feels a lot like the wild, wild west, but they packaged it up to make it look like this, this is the way it works and it can't be changed. And this is just, this is what you get. Yeah. There's a lot of bells and whistles to make it seem like you're getting something on the other side of that velvet rope and aren't you lucky to get it? And the reality is, let's just for a minute, take the blinders off. Let's turn the lights on in this club and let's really look at this corner. How different is it from that one over there? Yeah. And what we see is we see that, wait a minute, I, I would rather you provide the service before I pay you. Right. I would rather that you legally are required to put my interests first. Uh, you know, that, that seems pretty appropriate. And then, you know, the third point that we've covered is, could you just commit in writing to how you are going to keep me informed? I would like, I would like that to be clear. And then that way, when you don't do it, I can hold you accountable and your firm can hold you accountable. And maybe I get less fees because of it, because you didn't contact me or maybe you lose your job for that reason. Instead of you losing your job for not bringing in enough money, you lose your job for not taking care of the client. And we get someone in there that is doing the service standard that we all agreed to. Yeah. You think it would work that way. Like happy client, happy business. It's a big yeah. shift. I feel like, I feel like you're starting a movement with all this, you know, it's like you were, we're, we're at the beginning of, of, a shift or a change or a potential shift or change. I, I'm sure you, you are, you're representing that, right? You're probably um, an early adapter or the creator of it, or you're definitely getting on board with it. Yeah, hundred percent. In fact, I kind of view it a lot like a stove, you know, now that somebody can turn the stove on and boom, there's a, there's a flame ready to cook your pasta. Nobody is ever going to go back to having a campfire that they have to rub the sticks together. Right. You're never going to do that. And that's how I feel that, that this is. There's no way that people are going to go back to being treated with a lower legal standard, with no service standard, and collect all your money up front. And believe me, that's three of a lot of very clear examples where you know the, the money magicians 
They've got us fooled. There's really an illusion there. And once you see behind the curtain, you know, it, it, wait a minute, that doesn't work. You know, that obviously there's wires holding that lady up, you know, that magic trick doesn't make any sense yeah. now that I know how it's done. You know, now yeah. that I know someone just has to say it out loud, you hear it one time, you think, wait a minute, I will never let somebody be a suitable investor for me. Why would I do that? Right. It's funny you say that, you know, you keep referencing the club and the, and the velvet rope. And it's like, when once you dig into it, you figure out all those beautiful people behind the rope have been paid to stand there. That is very true. You know, they hire they hire talent to come in and, and bolster the reputation of the club. And, oh, I got to get in there. Look at, look at those people in there. I want to be hanging out with them. And they're, they're being paid to be there. I'm not there because they want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. All the little tricks, you know, the illusions. And if we just, once we know the the truth of it, it's a lot harder to pull the wool over our eyes. And that's what my next book is, is about is let's make it so that the wool cannot be pulled over your eyes. You can take the path you want to take, but understand how the tricks are done. And we talked earlier about this. This all applies to, we're, we're kind of talking about the, the personal wealth investors, the brokerages, Wall Street, and, and kind of in the context of I've made money, I have money. But this this applies to in-business 401ks and things as well, doesn't it? It certainly does, yeah. And you think these people want to, all the business owners I've worked with are passionate about taking care of their people. You know, the, the thing the biggest level of stress I think they, they incur is making sure they can have enough money in the bank to, for a check run because they understand their people rely on them and, and trust them to take care of them financially. And this seems like a logical step for someone to do, especially if you have a 401k and you want to make sure like a lot of those fees coming out of there could be going back to your people. Absolutely. In fact, just to say that another way is that that culture of I want to make sure that you're taken care of. Why isn't that our stereotype for Wall Street? Because it absolutely should be. 100%. You know, it, yeah. I mean, that that should be the way they feel about their people and the way they're treating their people. Business owners should expect it from their Wall Street partners. They should absolutely demand it. When it doesn't happen, it's an immediate no-go. For, for me, the biggest takeaway is you can ask for this stuff. I think because the, the brokerage or Wall Street isn't going to sit you down and say, so here's what you should be asking me. They're sitting there thinking, don't ask, don't ask, don't ask. And you're, you're arming people with very smart questions they can ask. So they are... Um, acquiring accurate and honest information. Because if you ask someone, are you a fiduciary? And they say, oh yeah. And you say, send it in writing and they can't. Now you have accurate information. You know what you're dealing with rather than taking them at face value. And that's another thing I've kind of gleaned from this is you can't take people in this role at face value. You need to ask the right informed questions to get down to the root of who you're dealing with. You know, I think it, it's a good, a good way to go through life is to believe people, you know, have faith in your fellow man. Right. And, 
And I think humans are mostly good and especially most advisors, the vast majority of them, they want to do good things for their clients. But sometimes we have misunderstandings in our verbal communications. It's just the way the world works. You know, you, you say something and someone, they hear the emphasis on a certain word. And so they, they take it to mean something different and that's okay. Where, where putting it into writing helps is that you've got something that doesn't change. It's immutable. You know, you've got the ability to go back to it and see, Hey, this is the message. And what's more is that every advisor that uh, any of your listeners talk to their email is monitored by a third party and it's stored for later. If there's a compliance issue, it can be used to, uh, to help to clarify what the communication really was. So it's, it's not just between you and that advisor anymore because he or she knows that there are other eyes that pass over that communication, which makes it even stronger. So to me, this isn't a case of you shouldn't trust them. It's a case of just interact at the best level of understanding and communication. And that email for now, that email is for sure the the industry standard. If they put it in writing in an email, it, it's pretty tough to mess that up. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you've given us, man, you've given us lots of things to be looking out for, lots of action steps. I don't know that they're in kind of an or a sequence or an order. So if I if I'm a business owner and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, ooh, I should probably check in on my 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 wealth manager only calls me on my birthday and I don't really know what's going on. I don't know if he's a fiduciary and I don't know if if what my fees are. What are the kind of first one, two, three things as a business owner? Even it, it could be in um, about the 401k. What are some simple action steps they could take after listening to this just to check in on their their cash, right? Their their 401k or their the wealth they're amassing, their savings. What can they do to make sure they're they're in the best hands possible? You know, I think that the same thing you would do in a physical medical situation. You're in some physical medical scenario where the doctor is telling you ABC. The normal thing you do is you'd say, I'm going to talk to a different doctor and get their take on it. Just give me a professional second opinion and let me see what, what friction cre is created between those two opinions. You know, how different are they? Because it could be that when you get your second opinion, everything is pretty well the same and you need to do that procedure or you need to take that medicine. Or it could be that there's a very different way to look at it. And then you can compare contrast. Maybe even you need to talk to a third doctor. Uh, but that second professional opinion is an excellent first step. And a great way to make that real and easy for your listeners is uh, to just ask a tax advisor to recommend a financial advisor who would provide that professional second opinion. Uh, I, I know that on my team, we've got multiple advisors that happily would give a professional second opinion, and they could just mention you, Corey Harlock, and, and we would jump through the, the hoops to make that real. You mention my name anywhere, people jump through yeah. hoops. 
There you go. But I mean, but it doesn't have to be with my shop. I mean, if they talk to their CPA, CPAs have a special view of the work that advisors do. And so they know the ones that can be counted on and you can get a good referral to an advisor where there's no emotion involved. And you can just say, look, this is my situation. Take a look at my statements. What do you think? You know, is there something I could do better? And sometimes you can take that info to your current advisor and get things right. Or sometimes you might need to, you know, put the word out that you're looking for a new advisor to take care of you. When I get my second opinion, would I want to be specific about, I'd like this person to be a fiduciary? It's not a bad idea. Sometimes the CPAs though, they won't know either. Okay. And so, so it's good to just, you know, as I'd said before, just ask the person, look, are you a fiduciary? And if they're not a fiduciary, then you need to get a different, you know, it's kind of like going to the nurse when you need the doctor's opinion. That, that's because what I mean. Really yeah. Cause if they're both, if, if your second opinion is playing from the same rule book as the first opinion, they that's might right. just kind of split hairs on you and say, well, we could do it for 1.9% instead of 2%. Yeah, you got it. Is changing this stuff over, especially once you've been with someone a while and you have lots of different mechanisms within your personal wealth management or your 401k, a lot of times the, the thing that will stop someone from doing this is it's just a lot of work. It's a pain in the butt. Is is it worth it for the, the extra earnings or savings or I don't know how you would um, how you would classify it. But my impression is we're talking about, depending on the amount of money, we're talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars if, if you were to, to, to take all this advice and make a change. Is it worth the pain of making a change? That's a really individual question because some people will feel like if I save three pennies, I am going to make the change. And then other people will feel like, hey, it's, it looks like maybe I'll save a million dollars. And ah, I mean, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm not worried about it. So it's very individual. And I think that usually it's not money driven. Sometimes it is, you know, that, that that is out there. But for the vast majority of situations, the reason that they're changing advisors is because of that sense of who has the advantage? Am I truly being taken care of? Am I giving the getting the attention that I'm supposed to get? Is this relationship that I have with the advisor, is it appropriate? Is it feeling good to me? You know, it's an emotional thing. And sometimes the way that you know that you feel good about it is because every line of a form was filled out before you got it. And so you just feel comfortable that you're looking at that. And then other people, they're, you know, just give me the form and I'll sign it. And that, that wasn't even an issue. Everyone has their own ideas of what creates a, you know, a good sense of connection to their advisor. And that's usually the reason that they make the change. And that's why I think it's important to know how the tricks are done, because if you're aware of the illusions and you can see through them, then it's going to give you a more genuine, authentic appreciation for what the relationship really is. Your relationship is going to, it's going to be more clear to you. Oh, wait, I'm not comfortable with this. Which, 
and then as soon as you're uncomfortable, you might be talking about a trust issue, then that would be a big motivation to change. Yeah. As soon as there's a trust issue, that's the reason they don't hire an advisor. It's like, oh, this didn't go the way I thought. I, I don't feel the trust. Or I've been working with you for five years. And now I know that for five years you've been doing this. How come you never told me that? Right. The trust is eroded and now it's time to change. And that's kind of if I, I went back to if if you now know the questions to ask your current person and they give you the answers that you're expecting but don't want, that might be enough to go, oh, really? Yeah. I feel like I was maybe a little misled here or kind of some things were omitted from the conversation that would have changed my decision-making process. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a, a really good example. This is also uh, from my next book. So when an advisor goes from one brokerage to another, the vast majority of the time they have been recruited away and they've been recruited with a big bonus. There's a big payout to bring your clients from the old firm to the new firm. And there's usually a quota. The quota is you're not going to get this payout that we, that's been promised to you unless you can bring over a certain amount of, the, uh, of your business in a certain amount of time. So they feel a sense of, I've got to make this happen. Well, the clients are completely unaware of this. It's all behind the curtain. And so when the advisor calls and says, hey, I had these problems at that place and you've got to follow me to the new place. I'm going to get the papers signed it as soon as you can. It might mean something more to them if they realize, well, the reason this is such a rush and we got to get this done so fast is because you, you know, you're using me as you're going to get a bunch of money out of this. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're basically using me to get this bonus. And, and there's so many problems with it because when they move to the new company, they have new processes. There's new people in different roles that everything is fresh and new. Do you really want to have those first six months when their team is making mistakes and, oh, I, I didn't realize that's who I talked to. And, oh, this is the new software. No. They don't know where the is. Yeah, I'm yeah, still trying to Yeah. Yeah. To, to me, I really wish that Wall Street would have a blanket rule that when you change firms, there's a, a training window where they can train the, the advisor on the new systems and the new software and nothing starts moving for six months. Because that means the client is in the forefront. That means that the client is what matters and not, hey, business, make 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 us more money right now. You know yeah. what? That, that would but be then, a, a change in the right direction. The other side of that is that that gives their current brokerage six months to retain them and start spinning the story the other way. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we, we've gone over here. Uh, I just want to recap because okay. <laughs> it's been so cool. If, if they want to, if people are listening to saying, like I am, I had no idea I could do half of the stuff you talked about, or I didn't know there were differences here. I need to go get a second opinion. And the first question I should be asking is, are you a fiduciary? And if they say yes, say, great, I have some questions for you. Can you look at my uh, information here and then compare and contrast and, and see how you feel about it? And if you think it's worth it, you can make the move. Uh, is that is that accurate? Perfect. Okay. Um, okay, Chris, tell us about the new book, Outsmart the Money Magicians, coming out McGraw-Hill, November 23rd. Give us the overview of it. 
Well, I feel like we've been talking about the overview and uh, the idea is that there are very specific structural things that make sure that Wall Street has the advantage over Main Street. And it doesn't have to be that way. Not everybody conducts their investment management in that way. But uh, if you're aware of those structural systemic disadvantages, you'll avoid them. And, and so that, that's what the book does. It just helps to clarify illusion after illusion. And there is some, uh, some great magic in it because I had to do a lot of research on real magicians doing stage magic so that I could, I could show that it's the exact same technique. You know, here they're doing this on the stage. It's the exact same kind of trick. It's just here's what's happening with your uh, Wall Street relationship. Man, I can't wait for it because I enjoyed the first book so much. I look forward to reading this one. Okay, so if people want to reach out to you or anyone at Mansky Wealth, and one thing I should mention is I know your company credo is every client every month, right? All your people get contacted every month. You talked about how do you know only on your birthday? Well, you guys go about, I mean, you guys hold tons of events, client events. I know a lot of your investors have their kind of signature events they hold. You guys are really good at keeping in touch with people. So if people want to get in touch with Mansky Wealth, anyone over there and, and, and use you guys as that, hey, I want to get a second opinion. How can we reach you? Well, a great way is just manskywealth.com, our website. You'll see different phone numbers for different folks in the shop. You could email me, uh, cmansky at manskywealth.com. Uh, also, LinkedIn is a great place to look up my my name, Chris Mansky. You'll, you'll find me and shoot me a note. Very cool. Hey, man, thank you so much for your time. This has been eye-opening, and uh, I know we ran over, and I know your time is valuable, so I appreciate you checking in with us. Back at you. I apologize for running over. It's just I'm so no, passionate. You're such a good question asker. <laughs> hey, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Chris Mansky, he's a beauty. Best dressed guest ever and best our first best-selling author. author. Hopefully, we'll get more, but none of them will ever be as good as Chris. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you learned a lot about protecting your money today. I know I sure did. Uh, this is our 20th episode. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode. Not sure who we have on top for that, but we'll get someone lined up for you. Uh, enjoy your weekend. And I did want to mention, I forgot to mention this. We are, this is pre-recorded. This, this uh, interview has been pre-recorded because Chris is invited, has been invited to be a keynote speaker at DealMax Deal for the Association of Corporate Growth in Las Vegas. And that is a very big deal. So uh, congratulations, Chris. Good luck on your on your talk. While you're talking in Vegas, you'll also be talking here on LinkedIn next Wednesday. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure you, you click the like, follow, subscribe. If you're listening on the podcast, subscribe. We run these every other week. So uh, make sure you subscribe to that. Uh, if you, you like to consume your information visually, we have a YouTube channel with Tons and tons of stuff out there. Uh, subscribe to that channel. You get all the updates in the shorts. You can follow us on LinkedIn. We have a, a very live and active uh, LinkedIn page, Key Hire Solutions. And you can, if you just have any questions about building your team or hiring or developing a new role or reworking your organizational chart, we're happy to help you with that. You can schedule a free consultation with us at keyhire.solutions. Until next time, stop grinding, start growing. <laughs>